I also want to begin with just a special word of appreciation for Dennis Townsend, who stepped in for me last week, did a wonderful job, brought a wonderful message that uh, brought powerful testimony and a great reminder of just what it means to, to embrace the adventure of following Jesus. And I just, I loved listening to it. And uh, without even really uh, planning this or thinking through it, so much of what Dennis shared with you all last week really sets the tone for us today. I love the way that he encouraged us to remember that it's not so much what others say about us, but what Jesus says about who we are, that we are more than conquerors. And the same God that lives in Paul and Peter and all these incredible stories you read is the same God that lives in us. And, and that message really sets the tone for a lot of what we're going to be discussing today. But I'm truly grateful uh, for that wonderful message and for filling in in my absence. I, I was in Disney suffering for the Lord in Orlando uh, with my family getting the summer vacation off to a great start. We had a lot of fun. I, I'd been to Disney World before in elementary school and really didn't remember too much about it. And so as excited as I was to take my kids to Disney World this time, I was excited for myself. It felt like a first time visit for me as well and to go through this experience because Disney has quite the reputation, does it not? I mean, if you hear people talk about Disney, like they love Disney and, and the reputation that you often here is that it's just this magical experience. And, and it really is, to a certain extent, it is very magical, it is a very unique experience. And I thought about ways that I could try to come back and convey to you all what my personal experience was through this magical world that is known as Disney. But I, I realized that, as is often the case, a picture is worth a thousand words. So rather than try to describe it, if I could summarize our Disney experience with one picture, this would be it. That's the magic of Disney right there. And let me just tell you, as I am like wheeling this kid around, I can't tell you how many parents came up to me and were like, dude, I know exactly how he feels, man. So it, it wears you out. It's exhausting, but it is a lot of fun. And, and we had a great time doing it. And one of the things that really stood out to me while we were there was how many people that are employed by Disney have bought in to the culture. Like every single one of them. They've bought into this reputation and they are there to adhere to it and sustain it and to validate it, right? So I'll give you an example. We go on the ride, the Pirates of the Caribbean, and we get off the ride and it's now temporarily closed, which they did this, I don't know, kind of throughout the whole time that we were there. They temporarily closed a few rides. I have my theories as to why, but that's a whole nother conversation. And so the ride's closed. We get off and James goes up to the guy standing at the line, letting everybody know, hey, you know, the ride's closed, and James goes up and asks him a question. He goes, when is the ride going to be open again? And the guy standing in line goes, oh, when the tides begin to rise, me matey, you know. And I looked at him. I was like, well, that's cute. You know, he's keeping the spirit alive for James. And I look at him and kind of giving this exchange, like, okay, one adult to another, you know. And I look at him like, so do you know what a time it is? And he goes, check the moon to be your guide, you know. And he does the same thing <laughs> to me. And, I mean, it, that's how it was nonstop, man. They are, they're bought in, whether it's COVID protocols or the experience, like everyone is on point and they're going to sustain this reputation. And it really was an experience that led me to think a little bit further about the nature of reputation, how it's cultivated, how it's maintained, how it's preserved. And that's really kind of the focus of our discussion this morning. It's kind of the opening question. What's your reputation? And how do you define it? What parameters do you use? How do you determine if a reputation is good or bad? And it's not just what is your reputation, what is our reputation? 
as a church, as a body of Christ? These are important questions that we need to dive into, and it's really going to be the heart of the letter that we look at today. And my hope is that as we journey through this letter this morning, we have an opportunity to see that it's not so much the reputation that we exalt about ourselves, but the reputation we exalt about Christ, that ultimately we are saved by his grace. And so with that being said, let's turn to Revelation chapter 3. As you heard Kevin and April explain it to the children, we are getting out of order today. If you've been with us as we've been going through this series, through these letters of the churches to Revelation, uh, we should be at the end of chapter 2 looking at Thyatira. That, that's where we would be going if we were in a chronological order here or just in order of the, the passage. But we're jumping out of order for a couple of reasons. Thyatira is an intense letter. And uh, as I have told you a couple of weeks ago, I intend here in the near future to speak on this issue of sexual immorality. It occurs on numerous occasions in these letters and throughout the scriptures as a whole. It's a very important discussion that we need to have. And Thyatira is going to be the the letter that helps open the door to that conversation. And so knowing that that's a conversation that's on the horizon, uh, one of the reasons I decided to delay that discussion is because, first and foremost, I, I needed a little bit more time to prepare than coming back from a vacation and having just a few days to get settled back in. So one of the reasons was personal, just to give myself some time to really give the thoughtfulness that that discussion deserves and, and it merits. Uh, the other reason was just being mindful of what the ex- worship experience was going to be like today. Today's Grad Sunday, and, and I wanted to create a message that I think really does speak to, yes, all of us, but also graduates in that particular season of life. And the more I looked at it, I felt like the letter to Sardis was a better fit for us this morning. So we will cover Sardis today. You'll hear from Kevin next week. And then at the end of June, we'll come back to Thyatira and we'll have that important and very essential conversation. So today, let's go to chapter three and we'll read verses one through six together to take a look at this church in Sardis. It says, to the angel of the church in Sardis, write, these are the words of him who holds the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your deeds. You have a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up, strengthen what remains and is about to die. For I have found your deeds unfinished in the sight of my God. Remember therefore what you have received and heard. Hold it fast and repent. But if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me dressed in white for they are worthy. The one who is victorious will, like them, be dressed in white, and I will never blot out the name of that person from the book of life, but will acknowledge that name before my Father and his angels. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. All right, so this letter follows the similar formula that we've seen in all these other letters. You have the recognition of the recipients to the church in Sardis. You have a recognition of who is speaking Uh, a reference to Jesus, and then it leads you into this divine knowledge that really kind of leads us into the primary content of every letter. It's that divine knowledge that starts with that phrase, I know. Right in Ephesus, it was, I know your deeds. In Smyrna, it was, I know your afflictions. Pergamum, I know where you live. Today with Sardis, it's a similar tone to what we heard with Ephesus, but with a slightly different nuance. I know your deeds. You have a reputation. And that's really going to be what drives our discussion today, this concept of reputation. So here in the the scripture, the word for reputation is name. It's the same Greek word that you would use for name. And we've talked about this before, that in biblical uh, context, naming was very important. It was chosen based on that person's nature, their identity. It conveyed 
a significant amount about that individual. And so the, the letter is starting here saying, I know your deeds, you have a name. You have a reputation. And so this concept of reputation is gonna be what really drives us to a greater understanding of Sardis. The reputation, very point blank, is you're alive, but in reality, you're dead. And so the history of Sardis helps bring to some greater clarity as to why this designation is being offered against this church. All right, so historically, Sardis was a very important military city. It was a very important city politically, and it carried this certain uh, history that, that led to that significance, that, that royalty. It was a wealthy city, like so many of these other cities that we've had, these churches uh, that have received these letters. But what has changed is that the wealth maintained itself into the first two centuries of the Christian era. So it's still wealthy, but its political influence, its royalty, its significance in the Roman Empire has significantly diminished. And so there's this new dynamic that is going on. Listen to this quote from one of these uh, historians that describes Sardis. No city of Asia at that time showed such a melancholy contrast between past splendor and present decay as Sardis. All right, so they were living in this, this past splendor, this previous influence, almost oblivious to the present decay of the moment. All right, so there is this perception, you're alive, but in reality, you were dead. Another quote from a historian says, Sardis was a city of peace, not the peace won through battle, but the peace of the man whose dreams are dead and whose mind is asleep, the peace of lethargy and evasion. So the disconnect, right, is that they had just basically been influenced by this city. The city had been living on this past glory and now is there's just resigned themselves to living on the past neglectful of the decay and so it had become the true reality for the church loyalty to Jesus was a thing of the past they had given in to this mindset where dreams had died and minds were asleep I fear sometimes that that can depict our condition and our culture especially the church a place where dreams have diminished, where minds have fallen asleep. What about you? Do you keep those dreams alive? Are you able to fuel them and foster them? Are your minds awake or have they entered into a deep slumber? That's the challenge that is being faced here in Sardis. Now, the contrast that Jesus presents here is this constant image that he uses throughout the book of Revelation, this contrast between death and life being alive and being dead. Now, this would have been very appropriate for Sardis because one of the things that Sardis was known for was the necropolis. You know what a necropolis is? Necropolis literally in Greek means city of the dead. And so it's an ancient burial ground. And it would be one that could evolve over centuries and different eras. And you just had all these different tombs and cemeteries. And so there was this really large necropolis on this hill on the outside of Sardis. And you saw it every time you left or entered into the city. It was one of the one things that it was really well known for. And so Jesus is saying, you're not known for the wealth of today or even the splendor of your previous political royalty. You're like the city of the dead. You think you're alive, but you're dead. And so we learn some pretty important implications right off the bat when we begin to understand the context of the reputation of Sardis. One is 
that a lot of the times the parameters we use are different than the parameters that Christ uses, right? A lot of times we will look at certain things to shape expectations or to shape our understanding of reputations externally when Christ looks internally. On the outside, people may look in and say, look at that vibrant city, it's alive, but internally it's actually dead. And we do this as individuals, as families, as churches, right? We, we fool people with these external appearances. We even try to fool ourselves. We, we present ourselves as if, oh yes, I've got it all together. Everything's fine. Don't worry about me. All is good. But inside, we're dying. Inside, we're lonely. Inside, we're shackled and gripped by repeated sin and struggle and hardship. We do it as families, right? We have all these external factors that designates whether or not a family is vibrant and alive. We've got the big house, the white picket fence, the 2.5 children, the dog, and everybody looks in and says, isn't that a great family? But inside the walls, the family's crumbling. We do it as churches. We have all these metrics of what constitutes a, a living and vibrant church. Thousands of people are showing up. We've got all these conferences, all these campuses, but internally behind closed doors, death and decay. It happens over and over and over again. Our external measurements of what classifies as a vibrant reputation is often different than what Jesus sees. And the other implication and lesson here is you can't fool Jesus. You can't fool him. He knows what's going on internally. Right? And the other implication here for Sardis is that the disconnect between their reputation and reality was so stark, it was so wide. Right, this, this disconnect between living and death this is about as wide as it can become. And so they had lost a grip on what their reputation was versus what reality was. And so it's a very important thing for us to consider. I think we should dive a little bit further into our contemporary understanding of reputation. Right, if you define it from a contemporary point of view, reputation is the estimation of a person or thing that is held by the public or the surrounding community. Right, so it is, it's this view of how other people see us, how a community sees us as individuals or how we see certain things, right? That's the definition of reputation. And we, we care a lot about it. But what's the right way to view it? How do we care about it in a healthy manner? How do we manage that disconnect that can so often be created between the reputation that's created and the reality that is going on within? So a, a quote about reputation in particular comes from Abraham Lincoln. It says, character is like a tree and reputation like its shadow. The shadow is what we think of it. The tree is the real thing. I like that quote. Hang on to that quote. Character is like a tree, reputation like its shadow. The shadow is what we think of it. The tree is the real thing. The reason I like that quote is because of the way shadows can change. Right, like sometimes the shadow is almost very difficult to see. It's, it's so closely in tune with the real object that all you really notice is the actual object. But then there are other times that the shadow can be cast so large that it totally misrepresents the object, right? And so that, that imagery really, to me, kind of creates an, a vivid picture of this disconnect that we can have between reality and reputation. And that's very appropriate for us to consider in today's world because we are constantly trying to cultivate and curate a reputation for the world to see that is often very much disconnected from reality. And there's a lot of different ways that this can take place, but especially in the world of social media. Right? I told you guys uh, not too long ago that Jennifer and I, we'd watch this 
a documentary called Fake Famous. I don't know if anybody else has seen that. It's a really interesting concept. But, but the idea, the premise of the show is that the, the common perception now is that people want to aspire to be influencers. It's one of the top five like, jobs that young people aspire to. And, and the way you become an influencer is you develop all these followers and this large network of followers on social media, so much so that brands and other companies will recognize you and say, hey, will you promote our product because you are influential? And so people will work so hard to gather these followers and to create this, this network so that they can gain that sort of notoriety and become an influencer. So the documentary takes a look at how far people are willing to go. And their point is that, you know what, you can actually create a narrative about your fame and your influence that is fake and become famous fake. Because what you can do in social media is you can actually buy followers. You can buy comments. You can buy all this stuff that gives some sort of perception of having that credibility when in fact it's not true at all. In fact, I love this one clip of the show. They took this one individual they said the premise was, can we take ordinary people and make them famous and, and give this allure of, of what we think is the reputation of fame in today's society? So they took this one individual, and they're in the backyard of the producer's house at the pool in his, in his backyard, and they, they get her to lie down. They put hair and makeup on her, like get her looking really fancy, and they have her lay down on this raft, and they sprinkle rose petals around her and take this really high-quality, high-res photo, and, and she then posts it on her little newsfeed or whatever, and says she's at some luxurious Four Seasons hotel or something like that. And it's a total lie, right? And people buy in. And they're like, oh my gosh, look at her. She's able to go to the Four Seasons. And like, that's how they do it. This, this is the reality of our world, right? We can create these false narratives about ourselves so easily. And we can buy into false narratives that other people present so easily. And it's not just in social media, it's in any aspect of life. And so the question you have to ask yourself, what narrative are you creating? How close is the narrative that you're conveying to other people? How close is it to reality of what's really going on on the inside? Right? This is the challenge, is that disparity. And it can create a pretty significant risk. The further we get away and the reputation that we create from our reality, the more uh, catastrophic it can be, the more damaging it can be. Came across an article in the Harvard Business Review that was written in 2007 that gives a great example of this from a corporation standpoint, okay? So they, they take a look at this risk factor that comes between a distinction between the reputation that we create and the reality within. And listen to how they define it. And then the example that they provide is pretty interesting. Reputation is distinct from the actual character or behavior of the company and may be better or worse. When the reputation of a company is more positive than its underlying reality, this gap poses a substantial risk. Eventually, the failure of a firm to live up to its billing will be revealed and its reputation will decline until it more closely matches the reality. So you know what example they used for this? BP, British Petroleum. Now here's why that's interesting. They wrote it in 2007. All right, listen to what they say, because the major oil spill that BP is so well known for occurred in 2010. All right, here's what they say about BP. The energy giant has striven to portray itself as a responsible corporation that cares about the environment. Its efforts have included its extensive Beyond Petroleum advertising campaign, a multi-billion dollar initiative to expand its alternative energy business. 
But several major events in the past two years are now causing the public to question whether BP is truly so exceptional. One was the explosion and fire at the Texas City Refinery in March of 2005 that killed 15 people and injured scores of others. Another was the leak in a corroded pipeline in an oil field in Alaska that occurred a year later and forced the company to slash production in August 2006. This was in 2007, and so here we know that before long, 2010, the world sits and watches what National Geographic and so many others have called the greatest environmental disaster in the world's history as 130 million barrels of oil poured into the Gulf Coast after an explosion on the Deepwater Horizon oil rig that killed 11 people for 87 days. And so internal investigations took place afterwards that went back at least 10 years, and what did they discover? Despite all this money to create this reputation that was just defined, internally they were messed up. They would neglect faulty equipment. They would uh, encourage and actually harass uh, employees to not report any sort of malfunctions that were taking place. They would delay inspections to reduce production costs, and executives were actually getting promoted despite cutting all these corners. And so it cost them greatly. In 2012, they settled civil or criminal uh, counts with the Department of Justice, paying, I think it was $4.5 billion in criminal fees, 14 counts, one of them being manslaughter. They settled civil fees. Listen to some of these fees that they had to pay. $20 billion in civil damages, $15 billion in cleanup costs, $20 billion in economic damages to companies and individuals. It cost them nearly $70 billion. Now, interestingly enough, BP is still around today. They're still intact, but their reputation isn't. And that's the reality. The further the gap, the further the distance in what we are creating about this narrative, about who we are, be it as a company or an individual or whatever capacity, the greater the fall. Right? We, we are essentially living in a world where authenticity is becoming increasingly rare. And as the church, as believers, we have to strive for sincerity and authenticity, never forgetting who we truly represent, which is part of what we need to consider. What is the reputation of the church today? You ever thought about that? Well, let me tell you, it's not great. Reputation of the church, when Gallup started surveying Americans uh, not too long ago, LifeWay Research uh, did a study and they revealed that I think it's at about 35% of Americans would classify the church as being or having high confidence in the church. 35% and all-time low. And I have a picture here that kind of shows you the trajectory. And we can show that one in terms of trust in churches. You don't need to worry about the specific data points, but you can see the trajectory. Now, there's a greater narrative here that LifeWay would point out that it's not just the church, that really it's institutions as a whole, right? That right now in America, people trust schools, government, media, banks, companies, churches, less. That's our context. That's the reputation of the church. It's increasingly difficult. And so what we have to ask ourselves is what role are we playing and contributing to this narrative of how people view and understand the church? Why are they losing confidence in the church? And each of us have a role that we're playing in that. I'll, I'll go first. Let's think about pastors. So pastors have gone through similar studies. Gallup has been studying uh, the, the career 
ethics of professions since, I don't know, the 60s or 70s. And throughout most of its history, pastors typically sat at the top of the list in terms of being the most honest profession that you could have. But just like churches, it's gone through a steady decline to the point that now, I think it was in 2018, 2019, around 37% of Americans would say that pastors are actually honest and trustworthy. We have a chart that shows the similar, similar trajectory for them. Yeah, 37% in 2018. Now, what's sad about that is that if you were to say, okay, well, let's take out all of America and let's just ask Christians what they think about their pastors, the number only goes up to 42%. Only 42% would say Christians are really ethical and honest. Why is that? Well, think of the things that we've seen. I thought about naming names, but I'm not going to. Sexual immorality. How many times have we heard about infidelity, abuse, the hands of leaders that lead these churches? Greed. How many times have people misused the money that has been given to the church, manipulated people to give money for their own materialistic gain? Think about the racial tensions and the need for racial reconciliation and the racism that can continue to exist in churches today. Think about the political divide that takes place. All the different stories of disunity and disharmony that exist because of churches and the people that lead them. So what I have to do is I have to recognize that I live in a context where my job in the institution that I lead is increasingly seen in a negative light. The work is substantial. It is an uphill climb to restore the reputation that is currently being said about Christ in the church. And so what role are you playing in that? When people look in on your life, are you helping build that reputation or diminish it? See, and that's the key. That's the challenge about reputation. Right? It is just like so many other things in life. It is so much easier to destroy something than to build it. Demo day is easy. Right? You go in there, yeah, you can knock down walls like that. It's hard to build them. And so what will happen is you can spend years and years and years trying to build this reputation in one misstep. One misstep, it can all come crashing down. And so what do we do? do are we taking it seriously? And the other day I got up and I turned on my little news feed to read the latest news and I saw this article about the upcoming Southern Baptist Convention and all the different political concerns. You know who wrote the article? The New Yorker. I'll go to lunch with my neighbors, people that are not in church, and I'll hear story after story of how the church has wounded them. Here's my point. People are noticing. People are paying attention are you. What are we doing about it? Are we building it up? Or are we helping it being torn down? That's the question. It merits thoughtful consideration. So how do you build a healthy reputation? Psychology Today provided a really good uh, quote that I thought was appropriate for us this morning to really kind of help bring this home to a certain extent. It says, the secret to building a good reputation, become a person who deserves one. Take consistent action that embodies the characteristics you want others to associate with you. Don't just mouth the platitudes of hard work, attention to detail, loyalty, and drive. Live them. In fact, don't mouth them at all. 
Let others discover them in you. A good reputation shouldn't be an end in and of itself, but rather a natural outgrowth of your striving to be the person you most want to be. I love that. That's applicable for us as individuals as well as for us as a church. Here's the one thing I would change about it. It's not about striving to be who you want to be, but who Christ wants us to be. And so we need to cozy up alongside the church in Sardis. Because here's what happens. Here's the temptation that we face in our context today. The more we see this negative trajectory about what people think about the church and about Christ and about Christians, you know what our temptation is going to be? To placate the masses and to listen to their voice rather than Christ's. And turn to the world and say, okay, what do we need to do to be held in your favor? How do we need to look? How do we need to live? And we'll all of a sudden adhere to their parameters in the world to say, see how much better it is? They're alive and Christ will rise up and say, you think you're alive, but you're dead. Because we've started listening to the wrong voice. So what does Jesus say? What does he offer the church in Sardis? Several things. The first, wake up. Now, I love that. Wake up. The church is not, cannot, and should never be a place where dreams come to die and minds fall asleep. The church is a place to wake up. Literally, it means rise from the dead. Right? Jesus just said, you are a city of the dead. Rise. Wake up. Pay constant attention to how important this is. Strengthen what remains. So wake up and strengthen yourself. And this is the thing about growing stronger. It doesn't happen overnight, does it? It's not enough just to decide, hey, I'm gonna try to get stronger. You actually have to put in the work day after day after day. It takes time. It takes commitment. It takes a daily following to Jesus. Because the moment that we let apathy set in, we let lethargy sit in, we begin to live in our past glory days, that's when we're susceptible to those missteps. It takes a daily commitment. Now listen, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to have failure. But the more we cling to the gospel, God uses those missteps and uses those failures for his glory and for our strengthening. But we have to wake up we have to strengthen ourselves. And what's the other thing he says? Same thing he says to every church, remember. Men, remember what you received. Remember what you heard. Hold fast to it and repent. He points us back to the gospel. And in that, we remember that following Jesus is not some moral code. It's not just following a list of do's and don'ts. We believe that the tomb was emptied of its power, that death has been defeated. Listen, you either believe that Jesus rose from the dead or you don't. There's no in between. And if you believe it, it changes everything. Changes everything about who you are, who he says you are to be. It changes everything about our understanding of this world. It means we serve a risen, resurrected king. Remember, you're not here just to learn how to behave tomorrow, then the reason we sing what we sing is because we believe that Jesus emptied the tomb of its power and we hold fast to that truth. Wake up, strengthen, remember. And with that comes the word of warning that can kind of serve as our conclusion, right? Jesus leads us into this contrast between a warning and promises, 
Here's the warning. You don't do this, I'll come like a thief. You won't even see it coming. Could be in your own life, could be the actual return, could be in some capacity, but that disaster, that fall, that gap of what reality is for you and the reputation that you think you're adhering to, you're gonna feel the brunt of that despair. I'm gonna come to you like a thief. We need to look at all these different examples and take these warnings seriously. We cannot be a people where our dreams begin to die and our minds fall asleep. Day after day, we wake up, we strengthen, and we remember. Now the promises are beautiful. Threefold promises here that he points us to. Right, the first is this really interesting contrast between those who have soiled their clothes and those that will be dressed in white. So in ancient times, those with soiled clothes, that was a very significant, uh, shameful reality that would often have you kicked out of the temples of worship, even in some cases you would lose your citizenship. Right, and so Jesus is creating this, this contrast. As a result, the church in Sardis was very well aware of how important external appearances really were. And Jesus is saying, don't worry about what you can clothe yourself here in this life and in this reality according to what this city may say is important. I will dress you in clothes of white. Clothes obviously being a metaphor for their spiritual condition, their spiritual heart. White being symbolic of holiness, of purity, of victory. That's what he wants to clothe us in church. In victory, in holiness, in purity. And when he does so, we get to walk with him. Did you see that? Speaks to the relationship, to the closeness, to the love that he has for his church. We get to walk with Christ. The second promise speaks to the permanence of this reality. I love this one. This is the reference to you will not have your name blotted out from the book of life. This is really great. So the book of life is referenced numerous times throughout scripture. Right, you see it in Exodus, you see it in the Psalms, you see it from Jesus, you see it in the epistles, you see it numerous times in Revelation. So it is a, a biblical concept from beginning to end. But what really stands out to me about this reference is the way it would have been heard in particular for this city. Because it was very common in ancient cities that when you were born, you were written down in this official, official registry. And when you died, your name was literally erased from the book of the living. And so picture yourself in Sardis. Here you are in this city known for its necropolis, this burial tomb, and whether you realize it consciously or subconsciously, you are confronted repeatedly with the undeniable reality that there will come a day where your name is erased and you are removed from the land of the living. And Jesus speaks into that situation and says, no, there's a greater book that I've written and if you cling to me, you hold fast to me, your name will never be removed. It speaks to the promise of everlasting life. And then the third promise, the one that I really love, is the one that challenges us that when we truly begin to adhere to what Christ says about us, then we acknowledge him. We tell his story. We live according to his word and his truth and not the ways of the world, and if we are willing to do that, Jesus himself says, then he then will acknowledge us before his Father and the angels, which is, reminded, uh, is, is offered as a reminder here in this letter. Right? Jesus will acknowledge us before the Father and before the angels. Here's what I love about that. You know, reputation in many respects is about what other people say about you. 
I mean, that, that's what it is at its core. And at some point, if you have a good reputation, what you're going to need is somebody to come to your defense. So that when somebody hears something or says something about you, somebody in that vicinity that knows you might speak up and say, well, no, 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 no. No, I know them. They're actually a really good person. Right? They're different. We need people to come and speak on our behalf, speak in their defense. We need to become a people, not just as individuals, but as a church that is willing to be a place where dreams come alive and minds become alert so that when Jesus looks in, it is very clear. He says, yes, these are my people. So what does that look like for us just very quickly, right? How do we begin to actually live that out practically? Let me just remind you of the goals that we established at the end of April with Commitment Sunday, 220 and 200. Right, these goals of, of recovery, of justice, of discipleship. Right? Here's the reason we continue to put that in front of you. That what we're hoping is that God would call us together as a people and that within the year, by next April, we would see at least two renewal groups in place. That we would see at least 20 individuals or families that would come together to be willing to advocate for the orphan. That we'd see 200 baptisms within this next year. And how exciting that would be. And the point is, is that if we do that, then all of a sudden people begin to experience Christ, begin to experience church, and they come to a place like this and they say, you know what, this is a place actually for healing. This is a place where I find people who love justice. This is where I actually encounter disciples who are following Jesus and understanding what it means to make other disciples. And all of a sudden we begin to see the beginning of this dream. And this is the whole point, church. That number, that reference to 20 and 200, that's not the real dream. It's the seed. It's the seed that we want to plant so that we can watch the real dream bloom. And so here's the thing. The moment that I reference that, if your mind goes, that's not for me, it's for someone else, we've lost. Because the real goal is not about the numbers. It's about every single one of us buying in and understanding what's really at stake and recognizing that it's not about achieving some numerical goal, but realizing that if we just believe it, then we have become a church where dreams come alive and minds are awake. You can't fail if you're willing to dream and move and dare and go on this adventure of following Jesus. And so we buy into it. And the more we buy into it, the more we acknowledge him. And the more we acknowledge him, the more Jesus comes to our defense and acknowledges us. And the story of this gospel comes to life. And that's really the story that I want us to be reminded of as we conclude here this morning. Right? To, to truly understand this message and how it is that we take the gospel and create this reputation that is so closely intertwined with the actual reality of our own hearts and our own souls so that the shadow is not cast so far from the tree. And so what is that message, church? The reality is, is it's not about what the world says, it's what Jesus says. And what he says is he looks on every heart, every soul, and he says, the tree that you represent, well, it's broken. It's wounded. 
It needs to be restored. And so our message is not, hey, I'm perfect. Our message is, I'm redeemed. Our message is not, hey, I'm healthy. Our message is, oh, I've been healed. Our message is, I'm a sinner saved by the grace of God. We stand in the shadow of the cross. And we point to a savior who hung on a tree for you and for me. And that's the reality we cling to. And the more we hold tightly to it, the more we discover we are not exalting our reputation, we are exalting the reputation of Christ. So what role will you play, church? Will you diminish or will you build? Let's be that place where dreams come alive and minds are awakened and Christ is exalted. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you. And we are so grateful for the beauty of the cross. Father, we're grateful that we can come and acknowledge our own imperfections, our own failures, and be set free from the worry of living up to a standard that we cannot maintain. So Father, forgive us for all the different times that we try, that we listen so intently to what the world says rather than to what you say. Father, forgive us for being so easily led astray at times. Father, help us come to a place where we come before you in a spirit of humility, in a spirit of joy, in a spirit of gratitude. And just as you have encouraged the church in Sardis, Father, may we take those words to heart. Father, wake us up, strengthen what remains, and help us remember the hope of the gospel. Father, let us stand upon these promises that we will be clothed in white and walk with you and live with you forever and hear your voice come to our defense. Father, let us stand in the shadow of the cross and confess our need for a savior. So let that be the song that we sing. Not that we're perfect, not that we have it all together, not that we know what we're doing, but that we have surrendered to you and you have saved us. Praise you for that salvation. May it forever be the song in our hearts, the song in our minds, and the cry of our souls. We love you, Father. We pray all these things in Jesus' precious holy name. Amen and amen.